Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. So I should have provided a glossary of terms. Is that what you're saying, William? Well, let, let me say to you, uh, I thank you, really, genuinely thank you for giving me the privilege of being with you and to expand the Scriptures. I feel so honored to have been asked. We're looking at 1 John and have been over these, these mornings. If you'd like to turn to 1 John... And as you do so, I'll tell you a story. Um, you, you probably realize that I get up to all sorts of mischief and crazy things in ministry. That's who I am. I've been called to mission, and therefore, at times, I have been pushing back and stretching the boundaries in order to be effective to communicate the gospel. Uh, we were having a period of time in, in Lucan which, as you know, is 98% Roman Catholic, uh, as to how we could effectively bear witness to those from a nominally Catholic background. And even though after the Second Vatican Council, it is no longer a mortaler to go in, a mortal sin, to go into a Protestant church, people still feel a bit uncomfortable. They really do. This is something novel. This is something strange for them. And when they do come, usually for weddings or funerals, they come in and they'll sit down, and the first thing they'll notice is, why are there holes in the chairs? See those holes? They don't know why, why are there holes in the chairs. And, and, and then, of course, they will notice that there, there, there are no real pictures or images. And then the highlight was when one, one guy said to me, when, when the words went on the screen and people began singing, he said to me, this is a karaoke church. I felt it was important for me to enter into the experience of those who were going to go to somewhere that they'd never been to before. People who are not in the know, how do they feel? And I thought to myself, what, I've ne- what have I never been in before? What, what have I never experienced before? And I thought to myself, I've never been in a bookies before. <laughs> now, there are three bookies in Lucan. And, and I took up the courage to go inside the bookies. Now, this is, this is how people feel about coming into church. You, you stand outside the door and you wonder, will I, won't I? And then you look to the left and to the right to make sure that nobody really sees you. And then I went in and there was this little girl and she was about 14. Well, everybody at my age looks, at four, looks like 14. Have you noticed that as you get older? All these people in the banks and so on, they're all children looking after you. So this little girl, who was about, maybe about in her 20s, I went to her and I said, what do I do? What? What do you mean? I said, what do I do? Well, do you want to place a bet? What's a bet? I said. Oh, really? Well, I said, I've never been in the bookies before. I don't know what to do. So she thought this is too much for her. So she brings in two ladies from behind. Now, they are senior ladies. And uh, they, they come forward and I start the same routine again. I've never been in the bookies before. You know, what do I do? And she would say to me, do you want to put money on a horse? What do you mean money on a horse? I'm asking all these questions. And as I was going through this, eventually I got to the point and I said, okay, okay, ladies, I have to explain to you. 
I'm the Presbyterian minister from across the road, and I've never been in a boogies before. Well, these two women were not nonplussed by this at all. They thought all their birthdays and Christmases had come on the one day. They were so excited, they grabbed me by the arm. They brought me down to watch all the, you know, the horses and riders, and they were explaining to me what 30 to 1 and 27 to 1 and 5 to 2 was. This was a wonderful experience, you know, learning all of this stuff. And then, of course, they were trying to find horses with religious names. In our churches, of course, we have a subculture. We, we do things a certain way, and there, those of us who've been there a long time, we're in the know. Well, you realize that what was happening in Ephesus, where Paul was ministering. There, were, there was a group of people, we, we call them Gnostics. That's one of those big words that I kept using. They were Gnostics because they were in the know. Uh, they claim to have had a special encounter with the divine. The seed of the divine, as I've explained, which they thought was in everyone in the mortal human flesh, had been released, and they had become one with the ultimate divine, and they were in the know over and against the rest of the plodders and punters in the church who were not in the know. And when you're not in the know, you feel less than You're not at the party. And so on that basis, John writes this letter. Now the key verse, as I've explained to you, is in this final chapter that we're looking at. He says, I write these things to you. This is verse 13 of chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The key word is that you may know. He wanted these believers, people like you and I, to be brought to what we would describe as the full assurance of faith. We can know. Now, the Gnostics reckoned that they came to this knowledge through a form of initiation. And I explained that often this took place at a theater where there would be concealed lighting and sensuous music and even incense that would excite the senses of the smell. And and then suddenly they would be drawn through a carefully orchestrated liturgy into that moment where they would become one. I am thou and thou art I, they would say. Participation in the divine through initiation. Now, whether you come from a high and hazy church or a low and lazy church. I I make that distinction. Uh, I'm trying not to use big words. If you noticed, I'm not using big words here. The high and hazy are really from from Roman Catholic, perhaps, or Anglo-Catholic background. For those in that tradition, your form of initiation that brings you into the life of the divine in relationship with Jesus Christ is through, through the sacraments, initially through the sacrament of baptism, and then you are consistently incorporated, you live in the sacramental life, in your relationship with Jesus Christ, that initiatory event is absolutely critical in the high and the hazy. Well, the low and the lazy, which is us, evangelicals, low church people, we also have our initiation. Uh, 
Certainly, it, it often re refers to a story of conversion. Uh, but often it, it, it is initiated by uh, someone at a, at a service uh, asking people to be quiet or to raise their hands or to come to the front or to sign a decision card or to go into an inquiry room. And it's the evangelical form of initiation. And you reckon because of that event, because of that experience, you can now claim to know God. I, I don't want to be shocking or provocative to you, but nowhere in 1 John does he refer to the sacraments or to conversion experience? Isn't that interesting? Instead, he has given this threefold mark of what is required for us to know as to whether or not we are the children of light, whether we are the children of God, whether we are true followers of Jesus Christ. This is the threefold evidence. Now, let me say, in case you misunderstand me, I passionately believe in the sacraments. I probably have a higher view of the sacraments than most of those who are present here today. I believe passionately in what Christ has established for us. He commanded us to preach the gospel and to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because it is through baptism we are incorporated into the body of Christ through which we are ministered by Christ himself. It is in the Eucharist that we afresh are reminded and receive as we are in union with Christ in his body. He commanded this to us. The sacraments are really important. I believe in conversion. I am a card-carrying evangelical, let me tell you. I believe people need to be brought from death to life. We are naturally blind. We are naturally dead. Unless the Spirit of God works within us, we cannot see the kingdom of God. But the evidence that we have the life of God is given by John by us examining ourselves to see if we have this threefold mark. We said they were based upon the character of God. God is light, and therefore, says John, those who are in the light, who walk in the light, will seek a life of holiness and obedience. God is love. I described it as cause and effect. If God is love and we love him, we will love each other. That's the second mark, the love of the family of God. And, and the third mark is because God is light and God is love and has revealed himself supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, we are willing to confess and declare that Christ has come in the flesh and that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, John, in fact, at this point, repeats that exactly threefold mark. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. You see, the three marks are given in reverse order. 
you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's only possible, as was evident at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter, his outburst bowed, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. This is only possible by the Holy Spirit. Then John here mentions our love of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, because by this one, everybody will know that we are disciples, that we love one another. And then thirdly, he says, we show love for God and his children to seek by seeking to keep his commandments. You see, he uses here this family metaphor, the relationship of the child to the father, to the eternal son begotten of the father. They are inextricably linked as the three evidences of those who are born of God, children of light. Now this life, says John, this life that we have because of Jesus Christ is to be lived out in the world. Now that's really important, you remember, because the Gnostics believed that you really had to get out of the world because the world was inherently, essentially, fundamentally evil. It was black. It was dark. And in therefore to live the life of God, to live in obedience to God, it is necessary to escape from the world. No, no, says John. We, of course, are not to be of the world. But we are to be in the world. So that we might overcome the world. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what we are looking at at this moment here is what is foundational and essential for the mission of God to which we have been called. The world in which you and I live under the forces of darkness is decadent and corrupt, but we are called to overcome it while being in it. That's so important for us. We are to be in it. It is John Stott who's told us, I think, in his, in his commentaries that we need to know the word and we need to know the world. It was Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, who said we need to have the Bible in one hand and the scriptures in the other. We are in the world. But the social, the cultural factors at play in society, in, in, in which we minister, may differ depending on whether we are in the Republic of Ireland or the North of Ireland or Cambodia. But all of them carry an essentially debased value system. This is the world we are to live in. This is the world of mission to which we are called. And the pressures on us are enormous. We in the West at this time are, are bombarded by what we would call hidden persuaders. Sometimes it's just woven into the fabric of the culture in which we live. I was referring the other, other morning to the fact that buying things is what makes our culture function. The, the, the 
The status of a nation is determined by its GMP, but not by the values and culture of its people. It's economics. So, for example, after 9-11 and the, the appalling situation in the United States, what was the ultimate fear of those in power? That the GNP would drop, and President George Bush goes on to national television, calling the people, might I say he is a believer, but he didn't call them to pray. He called them to go out and buy. Isn't that interesting? You've got to go and shop. Because, of course, you cannot be fulfilled. You cannot be satisfied. You can't be happy unless you have a new car, a new house, and a new garage, and a new kitchen, and so on, and so on, and so on. And it is seeped into our mindset, into our culture, even those of us who believe. And the prevailing social attitudes which surround us may have originated with a few intellectuals, but become, they have become the view of the majority, and it's now axiomatic, and to question it, to quest any of these things is to put us beyond the pale. That's the pressure. That's the pressure of the world in which we live. And into this context, God has called us as his people corporately. He's called us to engage in a powerful prophetic ministry to bring people back to God and to his word. I know we come from different backgrounds and, and, and in terms of how we engage in worship on, a, on the Lord's Day. And I, I don't want to be, to be critical of anyone, but I do feel it's appropriate for me to say this. If, if the community of faith of which you are a part simply comes together on a Sunday morning and for 45 minutes you are led in what's called worship, but it's really singing... And for that 45 minutes, you engage in praise songs which are basically geared to take you out of the world into something beyond and ineffable and divine. And then you are given a sort of a 20-minute devotional, inspirational talk at the end. When you go into the world, you will not be able to practice grace, which is what a missionary calling to which we have been summoned by Christ to do. When, when, as those of us who believe the gospel, know that at the heart of the gospel is, is that we are broken and sinful, and that God in his extraordinary mercy and compassion for us has chosen to forgive us and to act according to the principles of justice so that he himself would suffer the consequences through his son upon the cross. If you in your liturgy, I don't care how you do it in a modern or contemporary or whatever form, that needs to be woven into the very fabric of God's people so that they leave the house of God to practice grace where they meet people who are alienated from them and from each other and, and you are so sensitive and compassionate and kind and generous because that's the character of God. You pursue what is just for them, but you do so in the context of such amazing grace because that is how God has treated you. This is our prophetic calling. I, I don't know if you remember that incident that took place a few years ago 
among the Amish community were someone who was not an Amish, I think he was the milkman, who may have been unstable, but he went in and he killed the children in that school. And, you know, the, these people were pariahs. That family, no one would go near them. They couldn't get an undertaker to bury that man, to, to bury the man who'd been shot by, by the armed forces. Who, who was it who looked after that family, whose son was responsible for the death of the Amish? It was the Amish, you see. They went and surrounded the family at the funeral. They, they practice, it's called, it's called Amish grace, you see. It's written into the sociology of the United States of America. It's Amish grace. In a culture, you see, of North America, where, where it's self-reliance and self-assertion and self-accomplishment, you, you come across these people who deny themselves because they believe the gospel. They are a powerful prophetic witness. And from Bangor, one of the greatest heroes of all time in missionary endeavor, went to Europe when it was disintegrating and the barbarians were at the gates and Western civilization was about to deteriorate. And Columbanus went with his monastic order, with a Bible in one hand and classic manuscripts in the other. And they plowed fields, they cleared forests, they fasted, they prayed. They lived lives of vigorous discipline. They were intellectuals. They used big words, I have to tell you. <laughs> they, <laughs> they read Vigil and Pliny and Horace and Ovid. And they preserved arts and scholarships and they drained swamps and they cut roads and they copied manuscripts and they organized centers and schools of learning and provided hospices. And they lived grace, you see. And they saved Western civilization because of the power of their prophetic ministry. They overcame the world. And so from this land, missionaries have gone to India and confronted the caste system. And in China, feet binding. As a result of the evangelicals awakening, men and women of faith began in Britain to practice the implications of their faith, justice with mercy, like Elizabeth Fry in prison reform, in Keir Hardy in the founding of the trade union movement. And what about what has happened in Ulster over these past number of years? How do you explain what has taken place? Well, of course, you can examine the political machinations of what has happened and why at certain moments in history people acted as they did. But undergirding it, something was going on, a stirring that is almost inexplicable, I want to tell you it was not coming from the mainline churches. As a former moderator, I can say that. 
it wasn't coming from the Catholic Archbishops or the Church of Ireland bishops. You see, they saw themselves as chaplains of their tribes. They had to speak in defense of their people. There, there were those little people, men and women who were born of God, who had received grace, and who practiced grace, who offered forgiveness. They created a culture, a climate, in which this, this province was transformed. Let, let me give you a quote. This, this I only read last week. This is from Gladys Ganiel. Gladys, some of you may know, she is the uh, research fellow in the C Senator George Mitchell Institute for Global Peace and Security at Queen's. And she wrote this. The most effective faith-based peacemilders peace in Northern Ireland were not the ecumenical activists who sought to downplay religious differences between Catholic and Protestants. The most effective faith-based peacebuilders were evangelical Protestants. Wow, that warms my heart. I, I remember, I remember because I was preaching on a Sunday evening after the assassination of Robert Bradford. And I was doing a series on Daniel here in Hamilton Road. And as a result, people came to me and said, Trevor, we need to do something about this. And as a consequence, there, there were a number of us ministers. We, we're all Presbyterian. I, I, it's not that I'm claiming credit for this, but a number of us met together in the home of Alan Favell in Finicky. David Burke was there, John Girvan from Hill Street in Lurgan, Brian Moore, who was in the Shankill Road at the time. And we met and we prayed and, and we produced something that appeared in Belfast Telegraph. It was a quarter page. Because we were confronted with what we considered to be almost idolatry in terms of how people were articulating their faith on this island. And it was called For God and His Glory Alone. You see, it was a direct confrontation of the slogan For God and Ulster out of which came, as you know, Evangelical Contribution in Northern Ireland, that what I think is a wonderful, has been a wonderful peacemaking initiative, which changed the hearts of so many people of all backgrounds and traditions under the Evangelical umbrella. It is this to which we are called, you see. It's a prophetic ministry. And John now gives us, in the text, the source of our ability to do this. It's, it's verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is a testimony of God which he has given about his son. Now, what, what John is saying here is because he's addressing what is going on in terms of the thinking of these Gnostics. He refers to the water and the blood. He's talking about 
the life of Jesus, the water, the baptism of Jesus, is when Jesus was commissioned or ordained or set apart to engage in this ministry for us. The blood, of course, is his death upon the cross. That's the water and the blood. And then there is the spirit. Now, what, he, what he's saying is that in order for us to engage in this prophetic ministry, in order for us to engage in mission in this world, we are drawn by the Spirit in union with Jesus Christ to be participants in the Missio Dei, in this big vision of the mission of God that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. It is in Christ and through Christ that we do these things. We are under his authority. And verse 11, he says, And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. He's referring here, you see, to the eternal life that we have received. Testified, of course, because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, which we have embraced by the Holy Spirit. We have this eternal life, but as I sought to explain to you, this eternal life is not something otherworldly. What he's referring to, based upon the rabbinic Jewish distinction between this age and the age to come, the age which is to come is the age of eternal life. It's the age in which the justice and the mercy of God through shalom is perfectly secured. Now, if we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, if we are participants by his Spirit in the Missio Dei, then we are the children of the age which is to come. Which means it is to be engaged in in the world, in our bodies. Uh, here's one of my concerns, and one of the reasons why I think First John is so helpful to us. Our thinking at times, even as evangelical Christians, is far too Gnostic, if I may say so. Far too platonic. That's Plato I'm referring to. It's, it's just something mysterious and mystical, and, and, and we will go to heaven, and, and that's it. Well, what are your expectations? I often wonder, what, what are our expectations in terms of the life which is to come? Well, we do know that we're absent from the body and present from the Lord. Yes, but we also know that we're going to be given bodies like Christ's glorified body. And when his body was glorified, and, and of course one, we can say this because the resurrection and, and ascension of Jesus to his glorification took place at one time. He came back from his status of being glorified to the earth to be with his disciples. And he said, touch me, touch me. This is not a ghost. This is not something mystical. This is a real body. We're going to have bodies like Christ's glorified body. And if we are the children of the age to come, then we are to express that in our bodies now. If, if you want to get a flavor of what it's going to be like in the age to come, you look at the miracles of Jesus. These were the signs of the kingdom. He's saying to them, this is what the age to come is going to be like. There's going to be no more hunger. That's why he feeds the hungry. There's going to be no more blindness or deafness. There's going to be no more sickness. 
There's going to be no more death because he raises the dead. There's going to be no more injustice. That's why he goes apparently crazy in the temple at what is taking place in terms of the desecration of the house of God. There's going to be no more alienation because people who are alienated and separated from one another are reconciled to each other in their bodies. So that our expectation is that we will have bodies like Christ's glorified body. And when, when Paul speaks of our bodies being spiritual, often people think that's, that's mystical, that's inevitable, that's beyond. It's ghostly. No, no. What he's talking about is Christ's glorified body, which is perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are our expectations. And therefore, we ought to express our eternal life in our bodies now. That's what I'm saying. Everything you do, everything you do is to be done walking in the presence of God now. Everything. I've discovered in interacting among Catholic theologians, they still function with a sort of nature-grace distinction. I, I don't want to use too many big words now. I'm watching very carefully. But, but they're inclined to have the world of nature and which is normal and the ordinary things that people do. And then there's the religious. So if you want to be religious, you need to join an order. In fact, I remember was I was working among teens one day and I was encouraging them to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And this teenager says to me, I don't want to be a bloody nun. <laughs> it's what she said. It was just... Because our only concept of someone who gives their lives completely to Jesus Christ is someone who becomes another thing, another role. You can't believe your normal life. Well, of course, at the Reformation, what did we discover? The priesthood of all believers. Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God in your bodies. You live, you serve, you pray, you play, you change nappies, you even support Manchester United. God have mercy on you. You, you paint, you compose, you discover, you teach, you administer, you do everything to the glory of God. That is the entire nature of our ministry and of our life on this planet as we engage in mission, in our relationships with each other. It's how we live as the family of faith, which means it seems so natural for John as he writes that prayer is the extension of our life in God's presence. Look at verses 14 to 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Well, if you're like me and, and you've been around a couple of these meetings and everyone asks you, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? You're just exhausted, like, could you? Let, let, let me confess something to you. I have struggled with this all my life in terms of consistent, disciplined, intercessory prayer. And I'm sure I've, if I got people to stand, you'd all agree. You, you know what I'm looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth? The, there is no temple. You know what that means? We are always going to be in the immediate presence of God, sharing, talking, interacting, relating, all the time. 
But in this broken, sinful world, it is important for us to have those moments when we are in the temple with God's people, when we are alone with Him and responding to Him. And we need the boldness to ask. I, I was on, I was on a sabbatical, and I, I, I went to Montana, and I know I shouldn't be name-dropping. I hate name-droppers, as I said to Her Majesty last week. But my spiritual director was Eugene Peterson. I had him for two weeks. And, and he was just a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, humble, introvert, quite different from me. <laughs> In many, many ways. And I, I was sharing with him the struggles I had of disciplined intercessory prayer. And he just said something so simple that I've carried since then. And it is, I share it with you, Trevor, Keep your list short. Isn't that so helpful? You, you can't pray for everybody. You can't. You'll go crazy. Now there are some, I know some, have amazing gifts of intercessory prayer in the church. We just, there are some. We've all had them. We used to call them prayer warriors. These amazing people who had these gifts for whom it was not a bother to them. The, the, the list was enormous, but most of us, I'm saying I know your hearts because I know my own. Keep your list short, but you can pray with such boldness when you come. Not with brashness or arrogance, but boy, can we pray with boldness. I, I, I know there was a whole debate about, about John Wimber and the founding of Vineyard and theologians from my background were unsettled by it. Well, I was sharing a, you know, a, an event with him one occasion. And, and what struck me about John Wimber was when he prayed and asked for something, he really did expect God to answer. <laughs> At most prayer meetings I go to, if people actually answer, they'd be so shocked they'd be carried out feet first. We don't have this bold expectation that when we ask, he will respond. But, but here John is out suggesting that, that we become so attuned, so in step with God, so at one with him in his presence, that we know his heart and mind and we will ask for what is his will because we've grown to know him and we long to please him. And we know that he will hear and give us the desire of our hearts. There are things we know that are close to God's heart. We, we know that he wants no one to perish. We know that, don't we? That's the heart of our mission. We know that his vision is the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We know that. We know that, that he's going to make disciples of all nations and all the riches of the nations are going to be brought into the new Jerusalem. We know that. But in this instance, he, he asks the church in Ephesus to pray for one specific thing. And it would be life-changing to the churches of which you are a part if you were to do this. You are to pray for a brother who sins, but not unto death. Well, my time is up, and there is no way I'm going to discuss with you mortal sin, or the sin against the Holy Spirit, or the sin that leads to death. I just say briefly, and because I've been watching Star Wars with my grandchildren, it means basically, if you've gone over to the dark side... 
If you've gone over to the dark side, it's the sin unto death. But, but you and I will have, have brothers and sisters around you in church and their family. And, and they seem to have all the marks. They believe that Jesus is Lord. They've confessed that publicly, and you know, they, they genuinely believe it. They, they live lives of, of love, of, of moral integrity, but, but, but there seems to be a coldness and a barrenness. And, and, and in church, you're surrounded by people like this. And, and they're in danger of becoming nominal, just doing the business, ticking the boxes, attending what you have to attend. And, and John says, I want you to pray for them because it's going to be life-changing, not just for them, but for the entire community of faith. It's going to bring them to life, these nominal believers. Now, wh why are they nominally believers? Well, the reason why we, we get into this nominalism is essentially within the life of the church, I believe, idolatry. That, that's why I think he says in verse 21, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. All of us do this. We, we've all engaged in some form of idolatry, whatever tradition we come. Sometimes the focus is on the gifts that God has given to us and we are offended if people bypass us rather than the focus being upon the giver. We, many of us are after experiences. I am an experienced junkie. I confess that openly. I love experiences. You could add that to my extrovert personality and bizarre behavior at times. It's just one of the other odd things that my wife needs to be prayed for to have to live with me. I, I, when I was on the sabbatical with Eugene Peterson, he said to me, he said to me, Trevor, what are your expectations of, of, of this sabbatical? And, and I thought I gave a pretty good evangelical answer. I said, I want to have a fresh experience of the power and life of God in my life. And he was on to me like a flash, and he said to me, maybe, Trevor, it's God himself you should be seeking after. Wow. That's evangelical idolatry, whether you want your heart strangely warmed or a charismatic buzz or an Anglican awe or a Presbyterian wow. It's idolatry, you see. We seek these experiences rather than God himself or, or people who are committed to the buildings of the tradition or to drums or to an organ. Oh, we've had all this, haven't we? Bound by all of these things, which is idolatry. And, and this is the point that John is making. They're family. These people are family. They're their brothers and sisters who are going through this, and you pray for them that they will be brought to a recognition of their sin and that new life will reignite not just their lives, but the community of faith of which we are a part. Well, I'm going to close just now. John says, you know, when, when you've completed this threefold test, you know, whether you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you practice love, if you seek holiness, you will ask yourself, how am I doing? You know, how, how far am I on the road? I mean, do I, have I reached the full assurance of faith? Can I tick all of those boxes? And, and, and some of you will wonder, 
You really will. And I'm concerned to be pastorally sensitive to you. Let, let me share this with you. I've had more diets than most of you have had dinners. You can tell by looking at me. Goodness gracious me, I've had more diets. I've A plans, H plans, J plans. I've done Atkins. I've eaten only bananas. That awful cabbage soup I've endured. I've, I've you know, I was on Slimming World last year. You know, I, what I say to people, and, and this is my encouragement to you, I, I say to you, when people ask me, how are you doing, Trevor? I say, well, I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I once was. And as you examine your life under the authority of God's word, and as his spirit has moved among you, and you have done this test, can you say, Lord, I know I'm not what I should be, but by your amazing grace, I am not what I once was. As those who are born of the Spirit, says John, you no longer live a life of moral disobedience. As the children of God, you are kept safe from the evil one who controls the world in which you live. You and I have been preserved. You know, when I, I preached my, my final sermon, which was quite emotional for me in Lucan after 31 years, um, the only part of the sermon that I remember was my overwhelming thanks to God that he had kept me from falling. You know that famous doxology at the end in Jude? He's kept me from falling. I can feel so many times, I know so many times, I could have fallen publicly. But he kept me by his amazing grace. This is the God whom we adore, who has come for us in Jesus Christ, that we might be his, both now and forever. Let us pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.